The scripture reading this morning is from Mark 15, verses 25 through 39. It can be found on page 931 of your pew Bible. It was nine in the morning when they crucified him. The written notice of the charge against him read, the king of the Jews. They crucified two rebels with him, one on his right side and one on his left. Those who passed by hurled insults at him, shaking their heads and saying, so you you who were going to destroy the temple and build it in three days, come down from the cross and save yourself. In the same way, the chief priests and the teachers of the law mocked him among themselves. He saved others, they said, but he can't save himself. Let this Messiah, this King of Israel, Come down now from the cross, that we may see and believe him. Those crucified with him also heaped insults on him. At noon, darkness came over the whole land until three in the afternoon. And at three in the afternoon, Jesus cried out in a loud voice, Eloi, Eloi, lama sabatani, which means, my God, my God, Why have you forsaken me? When some of those standing near him, near, heard this, they said, listen, he's calling Elijah. Someone ran, filled a sponge with wine vinegar, put it on a staff, and offered it to Jesus to drink. Now leave him alone. Let's see if Elijah comes to take him down, he said. With a loud cry, Jesus breathed his last. The curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. And when the centurion who stood there in front of Jesus saw how he died, he said, surely this man was the son of God. Thanks, Pat, for the reading of the word. And... Thanks, Brian, for leading this morning. Uh, if you haven't had a chance to meet him, he's uh, taking a little bit more leadership here in our music ministry at WCF, so you'll hear and see him. So thank you for the leadership this morning. You know, we've been walking through the God Story, Our Story sermon series uh, since the fall began, and we've been looking at how God reveals himself and his act of redemption through the history of Israel. And we've seen how God created the world, and it was good, but humanity fell away because of sin. And even though God chooses the people of Israel to call his own, and even though he sets them free and gives them guidelines for how to live in right relationship, they continually fall away and doubt his goodness. The story of Israel is not just their story, it's the story of our humanity. Humans need help. And today we're going to look at one of the climactic points in the story of Scripture, how the great hero, Jesus, comes to help. He comes to redeem the world on the cross. The cross is a rich intersection of God's redemptive work that is not singular in nature. Jesus dying on the cross doesn't just get a believer to heaven. As we look at some of the characters in the story, in the scene, we get a glimpse at the breadth of the redemption that Jesus comes to offer. 
So we're going to look at several characters. One is, one is the criminals, another is the crowds, another is the crown represented by Pilate and the chief priests, another is the centurion, and finally God himself. Mark tells us that there are two criminals that are crucified with Jesus, one on his right and one on his left. Jesus is sentenced to the death of a criminal despite not having committed a crime in the eyes of Roman law. And even though Pilate, who is the Roman governor, doesn't actually see how Jesus is guilty of death, he fears revolt from the people if he, if he doesn't bow to their demands. And so he sends Jesus to be punished and executed. This scene confirms what the prophet Isaiah prophesied 600 years before, that a coming Messiah would be numbered with transgressors. And it's an ironic scene. Because just a few scenes earlier, James and John, two of Jesus' disciples, ask Jesus for seats beside him in glory. But here they see their king, their leader, placed between two criminals. In Luke's account of this scene, we're told that one of the criminals acknowledges his guilt. He acknowledges that Jesus is innocent and asks Jesus to remember him despite his own debt uh, and offense. One aspect of sin is to understand it as an offense against God. It's a violation of God's righteous character and law, but also a violation of our humanity. When we speed past a speed camera, we commit an offense against the state laws. We are found guilty, and so we incur a debt for that offense. Now you can view that debt or that offense as a tax on your speeding like I do often. And, but in this case, I admit my guilt and I agree to pay the debt. But our debt against God is difficult to pay. The cost is too high. Our offense against God demands our life. And we are deemed guilty because of our sin. And so though I can afford to pay the debt of my speeding, traffic camera speeding tickets, I think I've gotten two so far here. <laughs> I can afford it so far. The offense is marked on my record. And even though God loves us deeply, our debt to him must be borne by someone. And our guilt cannot simply be erased. And some of you might think, well, I, I don't know if I really owe God a debt. After all, he loves me, doesn't he? This week I read a story about a mom. I bet you never thought you'd see Fortnite in a, in a church. Uh, it's a video game. Uh, trying to figure out this phenomenon called Fortnite. It's a video game that's popular amongst many teenage boys. Here, uh, her two sons had requested some cosmetic upgrades called skins uh, for their characters in the game. And so she entered her credit card number for them to make that purchase one time. But when she got her bill the next month, she saw that there had been $500 charged to her credit card account. During that month, the boys thought they had figured out a hack to purchase additional upgrades for no additional cost, at least uh, to their knowledge. But unbeknownst to them, their mom had unknowingly left her credit card information on the game. And so when she finally confronted the boys, she said in a very... Uh, kind way after her anger subsided. It says, I was trying to pay our bills today, but I was so sad to find out that someone had stolen $500 from us. <laughs> they looked so surprised. 
and genuinely upset and protective of their mom. But as she explained further, the boys realized that it was them who had racked up the charges. They eventually uh, folded and began explaining how they purchased a few upgrades at first and seeing that it wasn't costing anything. And so they moved on to bigger upgrades, eventually spending $500. Their actions, though done out of ignorance, had a cost, and they were found guilty. So she made them work off $500 and another $350 to buy their Xbox back. I see myself in these boys. I see something that I want, and it looks like it doesn't cost me anything to get it, like all-you-can-eat buffets. You know, when I was in college, my friends and I would go to all-you-can-eat sushi places in Vancouver. Our strategy was not really about eating until you get full. It was eating to the point where you feel like you ripped off the restaurant. <laughs> so one particular restaurant we went to would itemize every single thing that you ordered, and so our goal was, my and Betty and I, was to generate the longest receipt possible on each visit. And we'd tally up, you know, how much we actually ate, it would be like $250 a person. My greed was costing the restaurant owners, but even more, my gluttony and excessive indulgence were on display in the face of homeless people that would walk by right after that, walking out of that restaurant. It was costing me my humanity. I wasn't just guilty of taking advantage of the restaurant. I was guilty before God for my indulgence and lack of compassion for those in need. On the cross, Jesus willingly assumes the cost of our transgressions against God, even though he doesn't deserve it. He isn't the one who commits the offense. So he is neither responsible for the debt or to carry the guilt. Yet on the cross, he becomes our substitute in both of these areas of accountability. Because of his love for us, we are reunited to God. He gives of himself. And if we're willing to trust him with this generous and remarkable act on our behalf, we benefit from his perfect record and right standing before God. The criminals remind us how the cross redeems us from our debt owed to God and the guilt we carry because of our sin. As Jesus hangs on the cross, Mark tells of another group, the crowds. The crowds are the ones who cheered Pilate on to crucify Jesus, and the crowds here mock Jesus as he's hanging on the cross. We're told by Mark that those who passed by hurled insults at him, shaking their heads and saying, so you who are going to destroy the temple and build it in three days, come down from the cross and save yourself. The cross represents our doubt and our pride towards God of the universe. We join the crowds when we thumb our nose towards God, the God of the universe. Many of the crowds had gathered in Jerusalem because they had traveled there for Passover, which is kind of like an annual pilgrimage to remember how God had delivered their ancestors many years ago from Egyptian slavery. So in the storyline of Israel, they are anticipating another deliverer to come. And there is no doubt that crowds who have arrived in Jerusalem would have heard of Jesus' ministry when all the hashtag Messiah, hashtag, you know, Redeemer is trending on everyone's Twitter accounts. But for all of the doubters, Jesus hanging on the cross was confirmation that he is certainly not the long-awaited Messiah. When news breaks about an up-and-coming leader's indiscretions, you see how quickly they are dropped, right? Well, in most cases. 
Their actions bring shame to our organization or our cause. And if you ever supported a leader and found out about their unbecoming behavior, you find that your pride is on the line. You're conflicted. I supported this person? I went to bat for this person? And that's a crushing blow, and shame overtakes us. These crowds express shame and derision towards Jesus. They are those who, never, there are those who have never, oh, never believed him in, and now their skepticism is justified. And there are those who are ashamed that, that they would even consider Jesus to have been their Messiah. And those who indeed hoped in him are ashamed that he certainly does not seem to win like the leader they hoped for. Either way, they revel in his apparent downfall. They hurled insults at him. In verse 29, we're told, and this, these words for insults are called blasphemy in the original Greek. That's the word, blasphemia. And this word in Greek and biblical literature is evil words spoken against God. But what's interesting and ironic is that the very thing that they were accusing Jesus of, they were guilty of as well. They were denying Jesus as God. And that's the thing that put Jesus on the cross. Yet on the cross, we see the power of God's love and forgiveness. As he hangs naked and ashamed, amidst the spitting hatred of the crowds, Jesus says in another account, in Luke's account of this scene, forgive them, for they know not what they do. The depths of his love compel him to take all the hatred and all the blind pride of the crowds and extend forgiveness. Do you think that there's a bit of the crowd inside of us? Pride and the equally powerful shadow side of pride that is shame is counted as sin before God as well. We lash out at God in our disappointment and in our anger because we think he doesn't see the world as clearly as we see, the, see it. We point our fingers at him, accusing him of not being the kind of God that we expect. And that disappointment and shame are never really dealt with. This results in our sense of exclusion from God, but also distancing ourselves from others. But when we come humbly to the cross, we realize how Jesus is shamed and Jesus is excluded so that we might be purified and cleansed from our sin. The cross redeems us from our shame through the sacrifice of Jesus. The crown represents a third way that Jesus redeems us. We're told that there is a sign written over his head that says, Jesus, uh, the King of the Jews. The sign is an intricate intersection of powers and authorities at work. It's Pilate, the governor of Rome over the area, who orders the sign to be made to justify his decision to execute Jesus as a political rebel. And the chief priests, you know, leaders of the Jewish community, took offense to this title for Jesus as king of the Jews. And in John's account of the scene, the chief priests asked that that title be changed because they didn't view Jesus as a king. But Pilate refuses to change the title. Wielding his power over the chief priests and reminding them of who's really in charge here. Little do they know, though, that in this battle of politics and posturing, Pilate's sarcastic 
crowning of Jesus is ironically truer than he intends it to be. Their power plays are like kids splashing in puddles as the king of the universe looms over them on the cross, apparently disempowered, but no less powerful. The crown represents another aspect of our sin. Sin is an evil force of self-centeredness and a power accrual that destroys our hearts, destroys our humanity, and the world we live in. In our hearts, it shows up in two ways. Either as insecurity, if we are cowering under abusive power, or the abuse of others, if we are the ones wielding oppressive power. In our society, it shows up in our unjust power structures and institutions. A few members of WCF, the WCF community have been participating in this race literacy course led by Steve Park at the Little Lights Ministry, a ministry uh, to those living in public housing here in D.C. and committed to ra racial reconciliation. And if you ever have a chance, I encourage you to take this class the next time it's offered. I've been learning so much about how embedded structural racism has shown up in our country, in our very founding documents that form our national identity, form our political processes and laws that our nation's built on. When our founders wrote the words of the Declaration of Independence, saying that all men are created equal, that they are endowed by their creator with certain un unalienable rights, there were actually a very limited view of equality for all. It was literally only men who could hold those inalienable rights. It was only white, land-owning men whose interests could be protected and whose voices could be heard in the democratic process. Indeed, we have come a long way since, but the vestiges of this racial power plays are still rearing their ugly heads even today. They show up in the way that we draw voting constituencies. They show up in the way that we fund schools and zone our cities. They show up in the kind of laws that we write that discriminate against specific people groups. But beyond the issue of race, power plays show up in corporate interests that value financial gain over care for their employees and for the world we live in. Power plays show up in our homes when parents vicariously try to overcome their personal insecurities through their, at their children's expense. Where there is power held in the name of liberty, there is often cor the corollary underbelly of oppression upon the backs uh, that liberty is won. The cross, however, demonstrates that liberty is won by not oppressing the weak and the vulnerable, but by the strongest one, the strongest being in the universe, becoming weak and vulnerable himself. On the cross, Jesus disarms evil powers through self-sacrifice and service. The Apostle Paul writes to the Corinthian church, an urban, diverse Greek community made up of both very wealthy and very poor members. He says this in 1 Corinthians 27, I think it's on the screen, God chose the weak things of the world to shame the strong. God chose the lowly things of this world and the despised things and the things that were not, are not, to nullify the things that are so that no one may boast before him. We see the example of Christ. He doesn't defeat ugly power 
and an, with an uglier and more beastly power. He defeats evil power with love and with sacrifice. And this love and sacrifice overcomes the ugliness of our insecurity and disarms the unjust power structures in our hearts, but also in our world around us. The cross comes, uh, redeems us from unjust power structures. Our final character comes in a bit of a blur, but he makes one of the most profound and truest statements in, all, in the scene. It's the centurion. And when the centurion says he stood there in, in front of Jesus and see, sees how he, saw how he died, he said, surely this man is a son of God. The centurion is not an insider like all the other characters so far. In fact, he's a pawn of the oppressive Roman Empire. The centurion actually probably couldn't care less about the politics of the day. He had no skin in the game whether Jesus was God or not. He just was concerned about getting paid for doing his job. As far as he sees it, Jesus is a criminal, an insurrectionist, a rebel, like these two men hanging beside him. Good riddance. The centurion is on the job ensuring order is kept. He's blind to the reality of God. But as the story zooms in on this moment, the centurion's statement belies the incredible intersection of the stories and characters so far. See, the centurion is keeping the crowds at bay. He and his fellow soldiers may have been the ones to follow Pilate's orders to nail that sign above Jesus' head, crowning him as king of the Jews. And it's likely he that is involved in nailing Jesus and the criminals to the cross. There comes a moment in this scene where he sees Jesus on the cross give up his life and breathe his final breath. And at that very moment, Jesus experiences disconnection from the eternal relationship he had with God the Father and God the Holy Spirit since the beginning of time. Creation, too, groans at this moment of redemption. We're told that the sky darkens at noon. When the sun, S-U-N, should be at its brightest, it's the sun, S-O-N, whose life extinguishes to accomplish the greatest redemptive act in the history of the world. And since at this moment, it's the centurion that sees Jesus for who he is. It is the centurion who calls Jesus for who he is, and his eyes are opened. We might find ourselves to be like the centurion when we see Jesus, the Son of God, that he died and gave up his life for the sins of the world and for us. When this reality clicks, we find our eyes opened. And maybe that's been happening for you. Even though I've known Christ for many years, it's often at the cross where I'm reminded of the depths of God's love for me. In the moments of prayerful reflection, I come to see my own sinfulness, my disordered love, my incessant idolatry of things that are not God, my own attempts to master my life and my circumstances on my terms. It constantly creeps up, and it's at the cross where that is exposed, and I see him for who he is. The sins I've been blind to in my own life are illuminated by the costly love of God, and Jesus died to set me free from those things. In the centurion, we're reminded of how the cross redeems us from our blindness. In the criminals, 
We see how the cross redeems us from the, our guilt and our debt. And in the crowds, we see how the cross redeems us from our shame. And in the crown, we see how the cross redeems us from unjust power structures and evil forces at work in our lives. And on the cross, we see the breadth of God's redemptive act in Jesus' death. Through Jesus' death on the cross, and even though it's a single event, it does not have a singular effect. It is complex and affects many parts of our human experience because at its core, Jesus' act of redemption brings us before the most influential character of the story, the living God. Mark 15, 38, Mark reports that Jesus, after Jesus breathed his last breath, the curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. And as Bethany led us in the confession and reminded us, that was a, a defining moment in history. We find that Jesus' death is not an end, but it's a beginning. Because of Jesus' death, there doesn't have to be separation between a perfect God and a broken humanity. The temple for the Israelites was not just a building for corporate worship. It was the very place they believed God's presence to have dwelt in. The veil that Mark refers to is this curtain between the parts of the temple separating the priest from the Holy of Holies, where God's presence remained. And it was only once a year, as Bethany reminded us, that the priest would pass through this curtain, beyond this curtain, to offer sacrifice for himself, but also for the sins of Israel for that past year. But this act was only a temporary solution because no sacrifice could ever be complete enough. But here we have Jesus, the perfect sacrifice who died on the cross. Relationship is restored. And anyone who puts their trust in Jesus finds access to the presence of the living and holy God. Unfettered access. The cross redeems us from all our brokenness so that we can be redeemed fully into God's presence. The cross reverses the permanency of separation since Adam and Eve first ate of the fruit in the garden and were cast out of God's presence from the garden. When we look at the characters surrounding the cross, we get a glimpse of the character of God who hangs on the cross. Jesus hanging on the cross is not a unidimensional event because our sin is not unidimensional. The complex nature of our humanity and the complex nature of our sin is not too complex for God. He comes to redeem us from our debt and guilt. He comes to redeem us from our shame and, our, and our, from evil powers. He comes to redeem us from our blindness to it all. And he redeems us so that we might be able to stand fully and rightly before the God of the universe and experience relationship with him for eternity. As we look to the cross today, we see the common theme of, of a self-sacrificial God who acts as our substitute because of his great love for us and for the world. So as we look to the characters of the cross and are reminded of God's own character, may our lives too become cross-shaped, in our sacrifice. As we trust in Jesus, as we follow him, 
may we find that we too become characters in God's story of redemption, revealing that his redemption is not only for us, but for the world around us. Let's pray. Jesus, we thank you for the cross. And if we've, you know, journeyed with you for many years, it's easy for the cross to become kind of distant. But as we look to the story today, we find that you have drawn near to us and to our brokenness because of your love. And so as we come before you, Jesus, may we recognize our own blindness to our own sin. But because of your mercy, you expose it for us and you invite us to trust you and find freedom from our guilt, freedom from our shame. And Lord, that when we are restored in relationship with you, this can overflow in your mercy and love through our lives. That we can be agents of redemption for you and experience the deepest joy as we follow you. So Jesus, we come before you too and we offer our lives and our hearts that you would be made much of in our lives and that we would continue this, your story of redemption as we follow you. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.